I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in this week. Hey, I'm excited to have back on the program this week as a returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Dr. Schilling will be joining me in the second and third segments of today's program. I'm going to get his take on why we have so many quits in the job market, what his economic forecast is moving ahead, and where, in his view, stocks and bonds and commodities are headed. Gary has been a longtime Forbes columnist. He is also a Bloomberg contributor, and he joins me in segments two and three of today's program. If you've not yet received a copy of my best-selling book from last year titled Revenue Sourcing, the Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy, I would encourage you to go to MyRevenueSourcingBook.com and request your free copy of the book as well as some bonus information. I'll be very glad to send it to you. Just go to the site again, MyRevenueSourcingBook.com. Let us know where to mail the book as well as the bonus information, and we will be glad to get that out to you. Well, some of you listening to today's program perhaps have a pension. Now, when you talk about retirement plans, there are really two types of retirement plans. There's the defined contribution plan. That's the plan that most of you are probably most familiar with. A defined contribution plan has you contributing to your retirement plan. So a 401k, an IRA, those are defined contribution plans. But there is another type of retirement plan called a defined benefit plan. Now, a defined benefit plan defines the ultimate benefit, the ultimate pension that someone will receive at retirement. Now, these defined benefit plans do still exist in the private sector, but they are becoming a lot fewer and a lot further between. However, they still exist for many state employees. Now, in a a defined benefit plan, typically someone retires at a particular age. A a retirement age is defined in the plan. And typically, they will retire and receive a pension that is determined by some formula based, based on past wages. So if you are managing a defined benefit pension plan, you know that down the road, you have to pay a particular employee a certain amount of money per month and you invest accordingly. Well, as you're investing, you're using some type of an actuarial assumption. You're using some type of some type of growth assumption. And over the past dozen years or so since the financial crisis, Fed policy has created a big problem for a lot of pension plans. In that, this artificially low interest rate environment has made it really difficult for the managers of these defined benefit plans to be able to get the returns they need to pay the promised benefits. Now, if you're managing a defined benefit plan, you have two choices. You can, one, try to get better returns, but you have to do so as safely as you possibly can because you don't want to lose money and dig a deep hole that a pension fund has to dig its way out of while paying benefits to retirees. The only other alternative you have is to contribute more to the plan. See, if you're not getting 
the return that you want to get on your investment portfolio, the only other option you have is to pay more in so you can meet these retirement benefits for your pension plan participants. Now, this past week, there was an article that caught my eye on this topic in the Wall Street Journal, and it was titled, Retirement Fund Giant CalPERS Votes to Use Leverage and More Alternative Assets. The subheadline to this article read, U.S. pensions are hundreds of dollars short of what they expect to need to pay public worker retirement benefits. Now, let me give you just a bit from the article. And again, this was published just last week in the Wall Street Journal. The board of the nation's largest pension fund voted, voted on Monday to use borrowed money and alternative assets to meet its investment return target even after lowering that target just a few months ago. So here we have a pension fund. This pension fund is charged with managing retirement assets safely, prudently, in order to be able to pay retirees their ultimate monthly benefit when they retire. So you have to ask, why would the largest pension fund in the country, why would the largest pension fund in the United States decide they're going to borrow money to invest and invest that money in alternative assets? Well, it suggests that they're not getting the returns they need to pay the promised benefits. So again, this this fund, CalPERS, has the same two choices that I just pointed out to you. They can, one, take more investment risk to try to get better returns, but that's not without its potential downside. Or they can just put more money in the plan to compensate for the lower interest rates that are earned on safe investments. Well, they are not opting to put more money in the plan. They're opting to take more investment risk. Again, from the article, quote, the move by the $495 billion California Public Employees Retirement System reflects the dimming prospects for safe, publicly traded investments by households and institutions alike and sets a tone for increased risk-taking by pension funds around the country. Without changes, Kelper said its current asset mix would produce 20-year returns of 6.2%, short of the 7% target the fund has. So their actuarial assumption is 7%. Well, if you go invest in a 30-year U.S. Treasury bond yielding 2%, you're coming up 5% short. So that is no longer an investment that will work if you're managing a pension fund. Now, there was a quote in the article from Sterling Gunn who is the managing investment director of the CalPERS invention, uh, uh, pension fund. rather, And this is what Mr. Gunn had to say, quote, The times have changed since this portfolio was put together, put together. Well, what's changed? Interest rates have been kept artificially low, and it puts pensions in a very awkward position. Now, for the past several years on this program, I've talked about the fact that there is going to be a problem when it comes to many 
state pension plans meeting their obligations to retirees. Now, the CalPERS board voted 7-4 to four in favor of borrowing and investing an amount equivalent to 5% of the fund's value, or about $25 billion, in an effort to increase returns. They're trying to hit a 6.8% return, and to do so, of their $495 billion, they're going to pledge $25 billion as collateral, borrow another $25 billion, and attempt to use the leverage to get the returns they need to meet their responsibilities to their retirees. Now, if I were to ask you a question, does borrowing money to invest in riskier assets sound like a smart thing to do to you? I think you would all probably agree that it doesn't make sense. Now, in the presentation, a a, uh, note was made that the use of leverage, borrowing money, could, quote, result in higher losses in certain market conditions. Well, what are those market conditions? Well, if the market were to crash, if the alternative assets in which CalPERS borrows money to invest don't perform well, they could actually hurt their returns as opposed to help them. When you try to get more reward, sometimes you have to take more risk. Now, if you've not yet gotten the revenue sourcing book, I talk about this very issue in the book. I talk about the fact that it's difficult to use traditional investment assets to achieve your goals of a comfortable, stress-free retirement. And in the book, I offer some strategies for you to consider. Again, if you're just joining me, I am making available a complimentary copy of that book. Again, the book is Revenue Sourcing, the Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy. All you need to do to get your copy is visit the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Let us know where to mail the book, and we will be glad to do that, along with some bonus information. Again, the website is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. And if you're not yet a subscriber to my weekly newsletter titled Portfolio Watch, there's no reason not to be. It is absolutely free. It is delivered to your email inbox every Monday night at 5 To take a look at the newsletter, you can go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. All of our free resources are available there, the podcast version of this radio program, as well as the Portfolio Watch newsletter that I just mentioned, as well as my weekly headline roundup webinar. I will be back after these words with my special guest this week, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I have the pleasure of chatting once again with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Many of you will recognize Gary as a returning guest. He has been a Forbes columnist for 40-plus years. He uh, is a regular contributor to Bloomberg. In fact, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, uh, he just posted uh, Gary Schilling's Guide to the Post-Pandemic Economy Part 3, which uh, I read. Uh, and uh, Gary, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, same here, Dennis. Thanks. Well, and I will mention, too, that Gary publishes a terrific newsletter called Insight. And if you'd like to learn more about the newsletter, go to agaryshilling.com, or you can get a complimentary copy by calling his office at 888-346-7444. I'll give that number again before this segment is over. So, 
Gary, I've got to get your take on this. Uh, the inflation rate, uh, even when measured by the Consumer Price Index, uh, is very, very high. What's your inflation forecast moving ahead? I think it's going to calm down. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion, and this is the Fed's view, and I don't always agree with them, but, but uh, I think a lot of this is is temporary. It's really uh, supply chain bottlenecks and reopening economic reopening frictions. Now, the real question, though, is will this spawn inflationary expectations? And you might recall that's what we had in the 1970s when. People thought, hey, prices are going up. I better buy now, last chance. And, and of course, that meant that inventories were depleted. Uh, uh, productive capacity was strained. So prices went up. Suspicions were confirmed. And that meant that people bought even more. And it was a self-feeding, self-feeding cycle. Uh, we haven't had that. It hasn't developed so far. But that's, that's the risk. That's, a, that's the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, but if we don't get that, then I think the uh, inflation situation is going to calm down. And I continue to believe, Dennis, that the primary driver of inflation is excess demand. And when you have excess supply, you have deflationary pressures. And right now, of course, we continue to have excess supply because China and other Asian economies are huge, huge producers, but very, very parsimonious consumers. It's the saving gluts that supply, as a result, worldwide uh, exceeds demand. Uh, you look, you look at, at China; their 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 consumer spending as a percentage of GDP is forty two percent. In our in this country, it's sixty nine percent, almost twice as much. They're big savers, and that saving glut. Uh, is is a counterpart of excess supply. So I think fundamentally you have very strong deflationary pressures and I think they will reassert themselves after this uh, current spat of inflation because of supply chain bottlenecks and and uh, frictions and reopening the economy subside. You know, Gary, I've interviewed a number of uh, bright people here on the program who are of the opinion that the Fed's uh, quantitative easing or, or currency creation, if you will, uh, are going to lead to those inflationary expectations and have people accelerate purchasing and, 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 and get out of the dollar. And, uh, you know, there's some, uh, there's some pretty dismal forecasts among some pundits out there. What would your perspective be relating to those positions? Well, first of all, the dollar has been very strong lately, as, as I'm sure you're aware. So it's, it, it's quite the opposite. Um, Things can change, but so far there's no evidence of that. And also, of course, people, uh, consumers have saved the vast majority of the three rounds of fiscal stimulus they got in response to the to the virus. Uh, the one in the middle of last year, they saved uh, they saved seventy five percent, only spent twenty five percent. The one in December, they saved seventy. Uh, they saved even more, seventy six percent, and in and the one this past uh, this past March, they saved 78 percent. So people have saved; they have not spent that money. I think that the pandemic just scared a lot of people. And the Federal Reserve surveys show that 16 percent of millennials don't have 400 bucks in reserves to, to handle contingencies. Uh, so I I think that we're going to continue to see. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see uh, high saving, uh, moderate spending. And as a result, we're not going to see 
those kinds of pressures which many people are are forecasting. But of course, you know, they've been saying that uh, ever since the stimulus uh, in response to the, the virus started uh, really a year and a half ago. But so far, there's no evidence of that, and I don't see why it's going to suddenly change. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. His website is agaryshilling.com, and his terrific newsletter, Insight, uh, is uh, a complimentary copy is available to our listeners today by calling 888-346-7444. So, Gary, the, the Fed has recently announced that uh, the, the taper will begin, uh, $15 billion a month, and that's going to continue. Um, as I recall, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but back in 2018, they started to taper. Markets didn't like it, and they quickly reversed course. Is this the real thing this time? It certainly has been advertised. <laughs> I think <laughs> after the uh, uh, taper tantrum, as it was called in 2018, when uh, Ben Bernanke was Fed chairman, uh, you know these, these guys in, <laughs> at the Fed have, I think they've really gotten scared, and there's been plenty of of discussion and anticipation, but that doesn't mean there isn't going to be effect. And you know what, what's really at stake here is how much, how much speculation, how much excess leverage, how much borrowing, and you know financial problems are always, regardless of the root of them, they're always uh, magnified by leverage, by financial leverage, excess borrowing, and of course that's what you've had with so much money uh, pumped out there by the Fed. Uh, now it's not. It's not. It's not going into spending. Uh, the turnover of, of money has collapsed, even though the money supply is in as has gone through the roof. But a lot of it is going into speculations, and uh, and 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 that's the that's the that's the sixty-four trillion dollar question: is uh, are we going to see a, a lot of, of blood on the floor as all these things? You know, you have individual investors, green investors, and they think they're master of the universe. They they moved into GameStop and and uh, AMC and and of course then you got what I think is even a Ponzi scheme is is Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies they've moved in with gay abandon and think they're really punishing the professional uh, professional investors so you've you've had a huge amount of speculation out there and 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 the risk is that that uh, the Fed even modest moves toward taking away some of the uh, punch. Uh, and that's what William Chesney Barton, uh, Martin, a uh, Fed chairman, many decades ago, he said the role of the Fed is to take away the punch bowl just when the party gets rolling. Uh, <laughs> well, the Fed is the Fed has been very reluctant to do that. They're basically an arm of the Treasury. They've been largely financing the federal deficit, and uh, you know you had the Greenspan put early on the idea that Wall Street could put bad positions, in other words, unload them on the Fed, and then the Bernanke put and the Yellen put. And now the Powell put, uh, but it's, so there's been a lot of expectation that the Fed will continue to bail things out, and I think that's led to a tremendous amount of speculation. Uh, so there is this possibility that as the Fed as the Fed tightens, that things are going to reverse dramatically. So, Gary, give me your take on the health of the U.S. economy. Um, are, are we heading for recession here? Uh, the one interesting area, and one that we're uh, we're looking at, and and uh, and uh, probably going to uh, write up in our December newsletter insight, is uh, the the uh, anticipatory borrowing and inventory building that's going on. There, there's been this mortal fear of not having enough stuff for Christmas, and so 
uh, people have been buying ahead. Retailers have been encouraging people to buy ahead. Uh, you saw we just had reports from from Walmart and Target that their inventories have really leaped. Um, and and this is really reminiscent of what happened after World War One. Uh, price and wage controls came came off. The wholesale prices doubled overnight. Everybody saw them going up forever. So there was tremendous excess uh, 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 borrowing, spending, orders, double and triple ordering, and then all the goods showed up, and as a result, we had the sharpest recession on record in 1920-21. I don't know where we're headed quite that far, but it is reminiscent of that, where you have this this huge buildup and and anticipation there isn't going to be enough uh, supply and and the bottleneck problems uh, with the supply chains have been the root of that, and as a result, we we could have a situation where we're going to see some setbacks uh, as as the as people realize that they bought ahead, they don't need all all those. Uh, they bought their Christmas gifts early, and the stores are going to be stuck with excess inventories that they're going to have to uh, unload with discounts. Gary, we've got just a couple minutes left in this uh, segment, but uh, I would like your opinion on uh, what's behind these these quits. I mean, when you take a look at the number of people leaving their jobs in the months of August and, and again in September, I mean, we have record numbers, like four, over 4 million people quitting their jobs. Uh, what, in your view, is driving this this, this new trend? Yeah, well, that's, that's one of, of 12 uh, changes with the pandemic that that we went into detail in our November uh, newsletter uh it's the idea there has been a real change in people's attitude towards work and uh you know people now want to work remotely uh they they don't they, they don't like the commutes and and you find more people are quitting you've had a huge surge about a million and a half uh people over 65 have retired early uh more more so than the trends would would indicate and a lot of people are, are really, in effect, saying, wait a minute, I'm not sure I really want to work that much. Jobs are plentiful. I can quit. I can easily find a new job. And, of course, at the current situation, the labor markets are tight, so there's more job offers than, uh, than there are people available. So you, you are getting, uh, you are getting that, that situation uh, at the moment. Now, uh, is this going to continue? I, I think it'll probably calm down, but at the moment, uh, there's a, you know, people are really feeling their oats, if you will, and that they can they can quit because there's plenty of jobs out there. If the economy continues to grow, uh, hey, that condition could continue. But is it, if I suggest we get after Christmas and there is a slowdown because there's been a lot of pre-buying and so on, uh, then you could find people are saying, wait a minute, there are not that many jobs out there. I better I better uh, hang on to the job I have. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. You can learn more about his work at the website, agaryschilling.com. And uh, the phone number to call his office to get a complimentary copy of his terrific Insight newsletter is 888-346-7444. I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Schilling when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with my, re, my, my returning guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, Gary has been a longtime Forbes columnist. Uh, he has also got some uh, terrific opinion pieces now that you can find on Bloomberg. And uh, you can learn more about his work at agaryshilling.com as well. He's got a terrific Insight newsletter, and he'll give our listeners a complimentary copy if you call 888-346-7444. So I'd encourage you to do that as well. Uh, Gary, you know, g- given um, everything we talked about in the last segment, um, I want to get your take on debt levels, because a lot of the research that I've been doing, a lot of the articles I've been reading seem to indicate that that credit card debt is at all-time highs, uh, student loan debt at all-time highs, automobile debt, mortgage debt. Uh, You know, a a lot of this so-called economic growth seems to be perhaps debt-fueled consumption when when you look at the numbers. So correct me if that's that's an incorrect perception or, or, or just give me your take on that. Well, I I think it has. You have to sort of tear it apart. There's no question that you've had huge increases of financial leverage, if you want to put it that way, in uh, what you're pointing out. Credit cards, auto loans, and student loans, of course, have been way out of of sight. Now, the other side of the coin there is mortgage debt. And ever since the financial crisis and the uh, subprime mortgage collapse in 2008, uh, people have been working working off their mortgage debt. Some of it was simply write-offs. You know, the, those mortgages had to be written off by the lenders. But a lot of it was people were much more concerned about uh, having big uh, loans on their on their houses. Uh, so the overall numbers don't look that don't look that extreme. But as you point out, some of these uh, some of these areas have shown a lot of of uh, increase in debt levels and i think this is this is indicative of this general attitude of there's plenty of money around why not borrow it uh the fed has been flooding the market with liquidity and um uh, it hasn't really gone into purchases of goods and services it's gone into 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 finance it's what i think it's what's pushed the stock market really starting in 2008 and even more so uh since the the pandemic hit early last last year and this money is is floating around, and the lenders want to lend it. They want to they want to make a return on the on the funds, and uh, and borrowers are very, only too happy to uh, to take down the loans. So you have built up a, a lot of a lot of this, and it it is a a risky environment. It's not it's not we're not up to the levels we were with subprime mortgages right before their collapse, which started uh, at the at the uh, in two thousand seven. Uh, but we're we're at levels that are certainly not very comfortable. So, Gary, uh, last time we talked, which was about five months ago, um, you were—I'll um, just say—you were bearish on stocks. You—you—you uh, you, you were not, uh, as I recall, buying stocks. Um, has your position on that changed? Well, yeah, I, I have—you um, uh, know—we've had a very heavy position in uh, Treasury bonds, which have been. Uh, doing well on balance, and uh, so we are long. Uh, we are long uh, stocks. Uh, we use portfolios we manage. We use exchange traded funds. We're, we're top down. We don't. We're not stock pickers. We're looking at the more the aggregate level, and and so we're using exchange traded funds on on the uh, S and P 500, for example, and and that in part is simply a hedge against our our uh, big bond position. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm not, uh, uh, but but we all overall are, I still have a lot of liquidity. I I think that uh, I think those stocks are in nosebleed altitude, and uh, boy, if there's any real hiccup here, I hope I can beat <laughs> hope to beat the beat the mob to the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, as you break down uh, the S&P 500 and look at, you know, the, the 11 sectors that make up the S&P 500, do you have any favorites? Uh, well, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's more a question of what, what, you, what you're least suspicious of. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the areas that are the most vulnerable and the ones that I avoid the, the, the most right now are the, are the um, uh, grow stocks. Uh, here's here's the rationale. Their earnings, their big earnings, are way way out there, many years out, and the way they're they're valued by a lot of, of uh, people is discounting those future earnings. In other words, saying what are those future earnings worth today, given current interest rates? Well, the lower the interest rates, the more those future earnings are worth today. But if interest rates go up, then the discounting uh, rate is higher, and the future earnings are worth are, are worth are worth a lot less. I mean, uh, if, if for example, if you if you've got uh, ten dollars of earnings ten years out, and your discount rate is one percent, it's worth ninety one. Uh, it's worth ninety one uh, uh, cents today, or, or nine dollars ten cents today. But if the discount rate is six percent, it's only worth about five bucks. Uh, so I think that I think that the the, the growth stocks are uh, are vulnerable from that standpoint. And that's quite apart from what their earnings are are doing uh, and their and their uh, performance in their in their areas. Uh, so that's one area I think is vulnerable. Um, some of the other areas that that you know you have to be concerned about are uh, some of the financial areas, the banks. Uh, they 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 are in a lot of businesses, but they are affected by the differences between the interest rates at which they borrow and those at which they lend, and short rates, as is typical when the Fed tightens, are rising faster than longer rates. Actually, longer rates have come down and short rates have gone up, and that squeezes their margins. These are what you call spread lenders, so I think they are. Uh, I think they are at risk. Um, so I would I would say the areas that uh, that those are the kind of areas I would avoid, and the ones that I think I would favor are things that are more uh, more routine, uh, you know, things things that people are going to buy regardless. Uh, you know, uh, f- food, for example, uh, basic basic uh, commodities. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I think it's it's a it's a uh, cautious approach, but that's that's the way I would play it. So, Gary, given the uh, Evergrande headlines that we've seen over the past couple months. Um, you know, do do you have concerns about the bond market? And uh, you know, we should maybe clarify, uh, you know, your bond position, because that would certainly seem to indicate that you're not expecting a big increase in interest rates. No, I'm not. I, I'm not. Now, of course, there there are many aspects of the bond market. The one that I've been uh, a big fan of for 40 years is, as you well know, Dennis, are, are long-term Treasury bonds, and they're Unless you think the world is coming in, and you don't really have a a credit risk, you don't worry about the uh, federal government going out of business. Uh, some people think it might, but I think that's a very, very remote possibility. Now it's a very different situation 
when you're looking at uh, looking at highly leveraged area, you mentioned Evergrande, uh, the Chinese property market uh, extremely vulnerable, and and that makes it makes a, a big a big difference. So you do have you do have a difference within within the markets. Uh, treasuries have a uh, have a, they not only are basically risk free, but they are safe havens, and. The interesting uh, aspect, and I, I've had this idea for some time, been talking about it in our monthly newsletter Insight, and I think it's beginning to play out, is the idea that people are saying the Fed is on the job, and they're they're going to really prevent any inflation from getting out of hand. And so when you look at longer-term uh, interest rates, treasury bonds, and you, to be a treasury bond, it's got to be issued with over a 10-year maturity. Ten years is a note, and and under ten years is is considered a a treasury bill. But anyway, if you're looking at the longer term issues, um, they have been strengthening while the short term interest rates have increased. And I think what that suggests is people are saying, wait a minute, the Fed is really going to nip any inflation in the bud here, even if it does develop. And so, looking ahead and looking at that longer term picture, uh, we're going to have less inflation. And and uh, and so that is in effect it's flattening what they call the yield curve, you know the the uh, uh, the the interest rates. Uh, on the, this is on the treasuries, starting with treasury bills, three month bills, and working out to thirty year bonds. So um, I, I think you have a you have a, a big difference uh, a difference there, and and the uh, the safe haven aspect of treasuries is always always a winner. Uh, when you have any kind of financial difficulties, if if you look back, if you look back early last year with the uh, the COVID crisis, I mean, the, you know, the the yield on thirty-year Treasuries virtually collapsed. It went down. It went down uh, below uh, below two percent, and it's now only about two percent. But it had started off about uh, three or four percent. Now that's a huge, huge move in the in the Treasury bond market. So it really did show. Where people go when they're worried, they go to treasuries and they go to the dollar. So, Gary, time for one last question here. Uh, you mentioned commodities just briefly. Um, what what's your view for uh, commodities moving ahead? Both, uh, uh, you know, the, the the industrial type commodities as well as agricultural commodities. Again, it's a it's a it's a whole spectrum. Agriculture uh, commodities obviously are very dependent on the weather. Uh, much more so than the industrial commodities like copper, aluminum, uh, zinc, uh, tin, etc. Um, and the weather, you know, the weather is always a, is always a bet as to how things are going to shape up. And now, of course, it's it's a risk on next year. This year, we had considerable droughts in the um, in the upper Midwest, uh, and that really curtailed uh, uh, grain production. I was. I was in North Dakota in in August. It's the last state I've never visited, and big state for big keeping. I was up there visiting friends, but you know you could see the effects of the drought. But in terms of of industrial metals, uh, you know the one thing is that high prices always always encourage excess excess production. And uh, if you look at commodity prices adjusted for inflation, they have been in a steady decline from the mid 1800s. Occasional spike with wars, uh, oil embargoes, and so on. But what it really says is that, yeah, there's only so much copper in the Earth's surface, but there's always substitutions. There's better use. Hey, I can remember when serious economists, grown men and women, thought that the uh, telecommunications 
advances were going to be cut short because there wasn't enough copper on the Earth's surface to make all the wires you needed. Well, guess what? Then they then they came up with fiber optics made out of silicone, which next to oxygen is the second most uh, prominent uh, element on the Earth's surface. Uh, so I, I, I think that commodities, uh, long-term, they aren't really an investment class in my view. And long-term, uh, betting on commodities going up is is just not worked, and it's much more better to, if you want to if you want to be in commodities to assume that they're going to con- that they're going to continue their long term decline. Well, my guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. His website is agaryshilling.com. If you'd like to get a complimentary copy of his Insight newsletter, just give his office a call at eight 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 three four six seven four four four. And uh, Gary, always a pleasure to catch up with you and have you on the program. Love to have you back down the road, and thank you for joining us today. I look forward to it. Thank you, Dennis. Bye. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to Dr. A. Gary Schilling for joining me on today's program. If you're just tuning in, I'm making available today a copy of my best-selling book from last year, Revenue Sourcing, the Retirement Planning Strategy for the Post-Pandemic Economy. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, all you need to do is visit the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Just let us know where to mail the book, and I'll be very glad to get a complimentary copy out to you. You know, often here on the program and in the Revenue Sourcing book, I have talked about the fact that Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our country, warned us against putting private bankers in charge of the currency. And despite those warnings, that's exactly what we've done. And Mr. Jefferson told us that should we do that, first by inflation, then by deflation, some very bad things would happen. And I'm paraphrasing there. Well, when you think about inflation and define it, inflation is an expansion of the money supply. Now, one of the symptoms of inflation would be rising consumer prices. Well, if inflation is an expansion of the money supply, then deflation is a contraction of the money supply. And as we've discussed here on the program many times, since all currency presently is debt, when debt levels reach unsustainable levels, the money supply contracts. Well, I think it is pretty obvious that we are now experiencing inflation. And the question is, how long will the inflation continue before the deflation kicks in? And that's really what the revenue sourcing book helps you figure out. It helps you put together a strategy to deal with both of these outcomes. And if you haven't yet put together a strategy in your retirement plan to deal with both of these outcomes... Since we know we'll get inflation, we know we'll get deflation, we just don't know when the transition will be, you need to get the Revenue Sourcing Book. And you can do that by visiting the website myrevenuesourcingbook.com and you'll see some strategies uh, that you can consider in your own financial situation. Well, all throughout history, you can find governments that have given in to the temptation to create currency. And as currency creation continues, it typically continues more intensely. In other words, more currency is created as time goes on. And 
initially it seems like this is working really well. It creates prosperity. That was the case in the most infamous inflation in history, the Weimar Republic. However, we know how that turned out as well. Now, in this segment, I just want to examine with you where we are presently in this cycle. Now, if you take a look at the Consumer Price Index, which, as we've discussed here on the program with uh, several of our guests, including economist John Williams of the website shadowstats.com, the Consumer Price Index has been changed many times since 1980 to make the reported inflation rate look more favorable than the actual inflation rate. Well, just taking a look at the Consumer Price Index, we have a 6.2% increase from a year ago. That's the most in more than 30 years. On a monthly basis, the Consumer Price Index increased 0.9%, nearly 1%. Well, if inflation continues to rise at about 1% per month, it won't be too long before we are on an official basis a double-digit inflation rate. Now, John Williams said if you calculate inflation now the way it was back in 1980, the official rate of inflation would be about 15% today. I mean, the price of gas is more than 50% higher than it was last year at this time in many markets, almost double. Grocery pl- prices uh, climbed 5.4%. Pork prices up 14.1% from a year ago, the biggest increase for pork prices since 1990. New vehicle prices jumped 9.8% in October, which was the largest rise since 1975. Prices are up for furniture and bedding. Tires and sports equipment prices, those are up by the most since the early 1980s. And even Joe Biden is using the term exceedingly high to describe the current state of gasoline prices. But when it comes to energy prices, it doesn't stop there. The price of electricity increased 6.5% in October from the same month a year ago, while consumer expenses paid to utilities for gas went up 28% according to numbers released last Wednesday by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Fuel oil rose 59%. Costs for propane, kerosene, and firewood jumped about 35% according to the data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Now, all this is happening while real average hourly earnings are going down. Michael Snyder, who writes a terrific blog, had this to say. The Labor Department reported Friday that average hourly earnings increased 0.4% in October, about in line with estimates, and that was good news. However, the department reported Wednesday that top-line inflation for the month increased 0.9%. That was the bad news. Very bad news, in fact. That's because it meant that all told, real average hourly earnings when accounting for inflation actually decreased a half a percent per the month, for the month. What this means is that our standard of living is going down. So in my view, we are seeing the inflation part of the cycle. This will be followed, I believe, by the deflation part of the cycle. And if you're aspiring to a comfortable stress-free retirement, It's important that you have a plan in place to help you navigate both of these environments. And that's what the revenue sourcing process does. 
If you've not yet done so, request a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book. You can do so by visiting myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Just let us know where to mail the book and the bonus information, and we will be glad to do that. The website, again, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. If you're not yet using the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app, where our newsletter, our headline roundup webinar, and the podcast is delivered, you can go to the App Store and search under your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you can download the app for free and get access to all of our resources. Again, search at the App Store under your RLA, Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.